0: First Corinthians 16, looking forward to our time uh, tonight. And, um, you know, we've spent the last four weeks here on Wednesday night looking at one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the New Testament, chapter 15 of First Corinthians, is all about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means to us as followers of Jesus. And based upon the reality of the resurrection and the life and the power and the victory that comes to us because Christ has has risen, Paul ended his teaching there in chapter 15 with these words in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says, be steadfast. And the idea there is fixed or consistent. It's the idea of not wavering up and down or to and fro in our commitment to Christ. It's a consistency. He says, be steadfast, be consistent. And then he says, and be immovable. The idea there is standing firm in the midst of opposition. Picture feet dug in to the truth that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he tops it off by saying, and always abounding. And the idea with that is being fruitful. It's the idea that your life and my life is is to be connected to Jesus and revolving around the life of Jesus Christ and committed to his kingdom and his purpose and his work. And I love how Paul ends this, knowing that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. To put it another way, we could say this the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should infuse our lives with focus, stability, and purpose. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should infuse our lives with focus, stability, and purpose. Now, here's what we need to understand. Remember, 1 Corinthians was a letter. We, We call it a book, but it was a letter That Paul wrote to the um, church in Corinth. And, you know, letters don't have chapter divisions. The chapter divisions were put in there by translators as a way to just kind of break up the chapters and, you know, kind of make it a little bit easier for us to read and dissect and that type of thing. But we need to understand this is one continuous thought. And so as Paul is ending there in chapter 15 with this exhortation, as he finishes up this letter in chapter 16, Paul's going to give some really important some real practical examples of what's being steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord looks like. And that's the context here as we move into chapter 16. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay, aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But it's fitting that I go also, and they will go with me. So the first area that Paul encourages them here to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord is that they would be givers. And Paul was going through the region collecting money offerings for the believers in Jerusalem who were feeling the effects of a famine that had hit the region. And so Paul was calling on the churches in the area, and the region of Galatia to help them, to come alongside, so to speak, the mother church and the believers there in Jerusalem. And here in these verses, Paul gives some very important information principles as it relates to giving in the church. And so if you're taking notes, number one, the first principle we see is that their giving is to be regular. He says on the first day of the week. Now the first day of the week is Sunday. It's when they gathered for worship. The early church in the first century began meeting on Sundays rather than Saturdays, as was their Jewish custom, because Jesus rose again from the dead on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And so to commemorate the resurrection, Sunday became sort of the formal gathering day of the church, although in the book of Acts we read that they actually met daily, it says, in the temple and from house to house but Sunday was set aside as the special day of worship. And so the first principle we see here that Paul gives to them is that their giving is to be regular on the first day of the week. The second principle about giving that he gives here is that giving is to be an act of worship. You see, by, act, by linking it to the worship service on the first day of the week, Paul is revealing that the giving of the tithes and the offerings was to be an act of worship. It was to come in other words from the overflow of their hearts of what God was doing in their hearts and their love for God it was to be an expression of their love for Jesus now here's the question that comes up why does God want his people to give does God need our money listen God, giving is not God's way of raising funds But it is his way of raising kids. You see, God is a giver. And he wants his kids to be givers as well. He does not need our money. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need your little, you know tithe or offering uh in order to accomplish what he wants to do but because god's a giver and he wants us to be givers too giving is a way that he invites us to partner with him in what he is doing you know jesus taught that where your treasure is your heart will be there also and god wants our treasure to be him and the things of his kingdom and his work in the world. And so he invites us to be givers, to invest in what he's doing in the world. So giving is one of the ways that we invest in the things of the Lord. It's one of the ways that we, as Jesus, you know, admonish to store up treasures, not here on earth, but in heaven. But our giving is to be a worshipful response To all that God has done for us. So their giving was to be number one, regular on the first day of the week. Number two, it was to be an act of worship. It was connected to their worship gathering. Number three, he says that our giving is to be proportionate. Notice, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. The people in that day got paid, not every two weeks or not every week, but they actually got paid every day. And so what Paul is encouraging and admonishing is that they would put something aside each day, storing up for the offering that would be collected or received on the first day of the week. But their giving was to be in proportion to how they had prospered. Now, oftentimes when we talk about giving in the church, it's one of those things that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But it really shouldn't, and I think one of the reasons why it does is because it's been so abused in the body of Christ, and especially on the tele-, tele evangelists sometimes that are on the the television, and so it's kind of put this you know bad taste in you know people's mouths. And here at Calvary Vista, we tend to you know we talk about this as we come do it in Scripture, like we are tonight. But it's funny how people will get really, really uncomfortable. And hopefully you're not uncomfortable. I don't see anybody squirming tonight. But I got to tell you, there was one particular time um, years ago, this is years ago now, that there was, and this is a very extreme example, but um, there was a couple that came to me. And the couple came to to see me in a counseling appointment. And and one of the reasons that they came was the the husband was... um, he was feeling like they needed to give. He, he felt like God was putting on his heart that they should give more. And his wife was really having a hard time with this. And so they came to see me. And I basically told him, hey, if your wife's having a hard time with this, um, I wouldn't do it. You guys need to be on the same you know, page, and, and uh, so I kind of counseled him that, in that way. But a few weeks later, we came to a passage like this, and I was teaching about, you know, giving, and, and now you got a picture, okay? It's a Sunday, the church is full, okay? And I'm talking, and as I said, you know, like I just did tonight, you know, when the subject comes up about giving, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and apparently this lady and her husband were sitting in this section right over here. And apparently, I looked right over there when I said that. So she thought I was singling her out. No joke, okay? Suddenly, at our house, this is back when we had a landline, we started getting these really bizarre messages on our answering machine at home funny animal noises and, and just, you know, this just crazy, crazy thing. And just, you know, it was bizarre. We'd come home from church. My kids would see the light blinking and, you know, they love when, you know, remember those days when answering machines, like that, you know, kids love to go push the button and my, my son would be Dad, it's the crazy person again, you know, because of these these noises. And it took a long time. It went on for months and months and months until we finally found out that it was her. And uh, she was the one, because she was mad at me because she thought I singled her out in the, the service. So I just want you to know, I'm not singling anybody out tonight, okay? I'm, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to look right up at the sky. <laughs> when we talk about giving, some people get really uncomfortable, all right? But in reality, though, when, when oftentimes, when, when the subject of giving gets talked about, the amount that gets put out there is to give 10% of your income. And the reason for that is because the word tithe is the word tenth. Now, some people like to say or they like to suggest that tithing is actually an old testament mandate that was established in the law where we see the people of israel coming and giving their first fruits they, they would give a tenth of their crops and the tenth of their herds to the lord but i want you to note this that the first place that tithing shows up in the bible is actually in the book of genesis And it happens in Genesis chapter 14, and this is before the law was even established. It happens after Abraham goes out and has a great military victory over the kings of Sodom that It says there in Genesis 14 that Abraham gave a tenth or a tithe, a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned there as the king of Salem and the priest of the most high God. So the first example is pre the law where we see Abraham giving this tenth, this tithe of the spoils of his victory. Later in Genesis chapter 28 verse 22, we see Jacob promising to give a tenth of the blessings that he had been given by the Lord. And again, this is another example of this idea of giving a tenth happening prior to the law being instituted or the giving of the tithe being instituted in the law by Moses. And then later on, so so we have two pre-law examples of tithing in, in the Old Testament. And then later on in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself validates the idea of tithing a tenth when he actually commends the religious leaders for giving a tenth of their spices, but then rebukes them for neglecting the weightier matters of justice and mercy. Now I say all that to say this. That biblically, the giving of the 10th of your increase, I think, is a good model to follow. It's before the law. It's in the law. It's in the New Testament. It's validated by Jesus himself. But here's what's interesting. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is basically saying, don't limit it to the 10th let your giving be in proportion to your increase. You see, for some people, the giving of the 10th can be a real challenge. It can be a real sacrifice. But for others, it's nothing. It's like a drop in the bucket. And so Paul is suggesting a different attitude toward giving when he says, let it be in proportion to how you have been blessed By the Lord. You know, I've heard of some people who have been so blessed that they actually give 90% of their income and they live on a tenth of it. Now, That's hard for, I think, most of us to even imagine being that blessed that you could live on a tenth of your income, but there are people who have done that. But I think that's a really good example of giving in proportion to how you have prospered. When a person can say, you know, I can comfortably live on a tenth of what I make, or I can comfortably live on 20% or 30% of what I make, I'm gonna give the rest of that to the Lord. And here's what's interesting about this whole concept of giving in the book of malachi the lord says this he says bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and there thereby put me to the test says the lord of hosts if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there is no more need now this is the only place in the entire bible where god says test me And it has to do with the giving of our tithes and offering. Now, I want to say this, though. The idea behind behind Malachi 3.10 is not, as some have suggested, that you give in order to get. That's not the idea. That's not even the heart or the purpose. The principle is more this. The Lord is saying, trust me in this area of your life, and this is what you're going to find. You can never outgive God. That's the focus. So the first place that Paul is admonishing the church here in Corinth to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord is in their giving. The second area that he's going to admonish them to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord is in following God's leading. We'll pick it up in verse 5. He says, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Very important phrase there at the end. You see, Paul had learned the importance in his ministry of being led by the Lord. Paul had desires. He had passions. He had places that he was burdened for. He had places that he really wanted to go himself to go in and and, and preach and, you know, bring the gospel. Like, I have this burden. I really want to go to Tahiti, um, personally. (laughs) God has said no, you know, so far to that one. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, But Paul had some real desires. Like, he wanted to take the gospel. We're told in Acts chapter 16, he wanted to, to go to Asia, he had Asia on his heart to take the gospel to that part of the, the world. But we read in Acts chapter 16 that he was actually prevented by the, the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit like put up a roadblock and that seems odd to us. Paul has this, you know, good desire. This is where I want to go and I want to bring the gospel and I, I want to, he had a burden for that part of the world. But the Lord instead would send Paul to the region of Macedonia. And from that experience and others, Paul learned to say that this is what I'm going to do if the Lord permits. It's really the the Psalms 37.4 principle. Psalm 37.4 tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The idea is you delight in him, and when you are delighting in him, this is what you're doing. You are aligning your heart with his heart. And as you are aligning your heart with his heart, he then is going to align your desires with his desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and he's going to give you the desires of your heart. Your desires are going to begin to be shaped by his desires. It's also the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 principle where we're told trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. That's where we get ourselves off, right? We start leaning to our own understanding. We start doing things that make sense to us. But he says, no, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your It's a promise. Trust in me. Lean upon me. And this is what's going to happen. I will direct you. You know, I think this year has been one of the most unsettling years for all of us. And one of the things I think that's been very, very unsettling about this year is it's been really, really hard to plan, hasn't it? Like you're trying to think about, you know, I'd like to go there, but it's like, uh, is that, even, am I even going to be allowed to go there? Is that even going to be open or, you know, it's been really, really unsettling. And I think that we've found ourselves this year, maybe more so than any other time of living day by day. And I think this has been good for us, though. As God has used this us to kind of break us out of our comfort zones and out of our routines. And I think for most of us, it's been really, really good. You know, on my podcast I was interviewing Phil Wickham last week and and he was talking about how this has been so good for him. This you know, he's gotten t- to to establish some, you know, different type of routines personally as relates to his devotional life, but, but it, it it's really shaken us up, hasn't it? And it's, I think, made us more dependent and more in a place than maybe we've ever been of just needing in everything that we're doing to be led by the Lord. You know, when I was first in ministry here at Calvary Vista as a youth pastor, our assistant pastor at that time, his name was Gaylord, Gaylord Tollhill, And every year for Christmas, leading into the new year, what what we would get from Gaylord for Christmas, everybody that was on staff got a day planner, a weekly day planner. Remember those? You know, before phones, like you'd write down your thing. And I'm a planner. You know, I was an athlete. I'm an organized kind of guy. So I really, really liked it. And I would get it, you know, each day, and I'd kind of write down what I had planned today. But one of the things that I discovered was, that so many of my days were filled with what I would call divine interruptions. Something would happen that just would throw my schedule and my plan out the window. And it got to the point where I just quit writing out you know, what I was going to do. Because there were always these divine interruptions. And it was so annoying at first. Because I wasn't seeing them in the right way. I was seeing these interruptions as an annoyance instead of as an opportunity. And so it's interesting when we are delighting ourselves in the Lord and we're giving ourselves to the Lord and we're, you know, seeking him to just lead us and guide us that we start to see, you know, these interruptions, these things that come and break out our routines. We can see them either as an annoyance or as an opportunity, but it's all about our perspective. Paul had learned in his life to view the roadblocks and the interruptions as these divine opportunities that God was actually now doing something new in his life, leading him in a new direction. The third principle that Paul teaches us here um, is that in order to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, we need to learn to press through opposition. We need to learn to press through. Notice verse eight. He says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me And there are many adversaries. Now, Paul is saying something here that I think is very surprising to many. He says that a great and effective door has been opened to him. But at the same time, there's many adversaries. And I think oftentimes we think that when God is opening up a door, it means there's going to be smooth sailing and lack of conflict. But oftentimes the opposite is true. Why is that? Well, when God opens a door for ministry, when he opens a door for sharing the gospel, when he opens up a door in your life for you to be used to impact and encourage someone else, the devil gets alarmed. He doesn't like that. He immediately seeks to oppose and to bring opposition. When there's a a, a life or a city, or an area of the world that has been in his stronghold for a really, really long time, and suddenly God opens a door for the gospel and the love of Jesus to impact, you know, that person or that city or that area, the devil doesn't roll over and be like, oh, praise God, he's working. No, he'd have, <laughs> that's not his mindset. No, he gets all up in arms. He wants to see how he can oppose that. During the years when we were going regularly to Russia and to Eastern Europe as a church, there was a great and effective door that was open there. It was right after the fall of communis- communism, and I mean, it was incredible. And the harvest was ripe; the people were so hungry. I remember being in a city called Kaluga, Russia. And we would go every day, there's a group of us, I think there's about 50 of us on that trip, and we would, were going to these various schools, and we were sharing, um, you know, we, we had an opportunity to go into schools, and it was kind of a, a really neat setup, is um, they, they said, you can't proselytize, you can't come in here and talk about Jesus unless they ask you. Well, here's all these Americans and most of them that were coming with us or a lot of them were teenagers and young adults and, and and we're going before these, you know, high school classes and um, you know, they would ask us about America, but then they would ask us, why are you guys here? Why did you guys come all the way to our city? And that was the open door to start telling them about Jesus and what Jesus had done in our life. And then um, every day we would go to a high school or several high schools, and then we would invite them to a concert that we were having that night. Phil Wickham was actually with us on one of those trips because he went to school here. And, um, and so the, this, uh, we would do these concerts, and every night, I mean, the first night there was 800 people there. The second night, there was 1,200 people there. The third night, there was 1,600 people there. The last night, there was 2,500 people in this auditorium. And I was preaching that night, and the, the guy who oversaw and organized this whole trip for us, he says, um, whatever you do tonight, don't give an altar call. And I'm like, what? That's why we're here. You know What are you talking about? He goes, no, no, you don't misunderstand me. He goes, if you call them to come forward, there's not going to be enough room. So just have them stand or do something like that. So I'm preaching that night through an interpreter. And I get to the point where I say, if you're here tonight and, you know, you want to give your life to Jesus and you want him to forgive you of your sins and you want to, you know, follow him, I want you to stand. I am not kidding you. The whole place stood. I turned to the translator and said, "What did you say? You know, like I I thought thought he was saying like, if you want a new TV stand, you know, I mean, I was like, what in the world did you say?" And he says, "I just told them what he said. I said, have them all sit down, and I just said, I, I I went over again. I said, I just want you to really understand what I'm saying here." you know I, like even made it harder like you know it's there's a cost and you know I'm and I'm going if you want to if you want to follow Christ and like all but about five people stood i mean it was unbelievable but that's how it was i mean there was a hunger there and that happened in city after city after city where we were planting churches but in the midst of that open door there was also great opposition the city officials were really, really bummed out that we were there. There was a lot of threats. The police and army officers were really bummed out that we were there, tried to shut us down several times. And the Orthodox church leaders were also really, really bummed that we were there. There would always be, when we were out in, in the streets, there would be, um, I think they called them brabruskas or something like that. They, there was these old ladies. It was a term for old lady um, in Russia. And these old ladies would come and they would be yelling at us, like these grandmas, if you can picture that, like 70, 80 year olds. And they're just yelling at us because they saw us as a threat to their Orthodox religion. But you know what? We pressed through. And there was a great, great harvest. Those were some amazing trips. And we did that for many, many, many years. And God just opened up this great door. And so effective ministry happens when God opens doors. Now, when a door isn't open, and this is a good way to decipher this, when a door isn't open, we can find ourselves striving to make something happen. And there's like, there's not a hunger. And there's not a harvest. And we're, we're striving. It's like we're, we're running into a brick wall. And we need to learn the difference. But when God opens a door, there's opportunities. There's a hunger. There's a responsiveness. But there will also usually be opposition and Paul learned to press through in the midst of the opposition he wasn't going to run away but he was going to face the opposition and he was planting himself in Ephesus he said at least until Pentecost until the Lord moved him now the fourth principle that Paul shares with us about being steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord is that you don't want to be a lone ranger You don't want to do it alone. Paul was a big believer in team ministry. Look at verse 10. He says, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. But send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Paul mentions here two men here that he enjoyed doing ministry with. Timothy was his son in the faith. Timothy was a guy that he led to the Lord, who served with him, had a young age. And Paul said of Timothy that he was the most like-minded and he had the most similar heart to Paul in the way that he would care for others. But Timothy was younger and Paul was asking the church in Corinth not to despise him, but to support him apollos was a gifted teacher who had also ministered there in corinth and paul was encouraging you know apollos to return there which he said he would at a more convenient time but one of the things i personally love about paul is that he was a big believer in team he wasn't a lone ranger and over the years i have come to value more and more the team aspect of ministry You know, when I first got into ministry, I was taught that basically the people around you or your staff, if you would, are there to assist you in carrying out your mission and vision. That was sort of the model that was given to me. In fact, I, I was told once um, that I was on staff as a youth pastor because Pastor Chuck didn't have the time to lead the youth, you know. And so that was, I mean, real validating, right? It's like, he would do this if he had time, but he can't, so you have to do it, you know. I mean, that was kind of the, the model that was put into my, head but i've since changed my view of that model and i see us now our team here not just the guys on staff but all of you who volunteer i see all of us as a team of people working together to fulfill a mission and a vision And what's interesting is that we all, and I think this is much more biblical, is that we all bring something unique and special to the table to serve the body of Christ, to serve our community. We all have different giftings and roles to play, but we're in this working together. As Paul writes in Philippians about the church, he said that, I I wish that you would be striving together with one mind and one heart for the faith of the gospel or the purpose of the gospel, you know, there were years ago when I was first pastoring here, I did 95% of the teaching here at Calvary Vista. And the reason why I did that is, is that was the model that had been given to me. I saw Pastor Chuck and others rarely ever out of the pulpit, in fact, there was a time when I was coming back from a mission trip in Russia. It was a 10-day trip, and it was an awesome time of ministry. But those times, I mean, i got to tell you, they're long days. We get up early, and we're going all night until like, you know, midnight. And then we get up all over and do it again, you know, for 10 days straight. And I happened to be flying back from that trip into san diego i was going to land in san diego on a wednesday afternoon i was going to land about 4 p.m and i foolishly decided that i was going to teach that night at our wednesday night service i thought no big deal you know i'll land i'll get something to eat i'll come to the church and i'll give the bible study well you got to understand flying back to russia especially into san diego um, with all the stops and layovers, is like a 24-hour ordeal. Okay, and I'm a person who, no matter what you give me, and I've tried everything, I cannot sleep on a plane. I can't sleep sitting up. Period. And so, I'm. By the time we land, and by the time I get to the church, I've been awake now for like 40 hours straight, and I was absolutely delirious. My mind was frazzled, and I remember standing up here, no, no joke, I remember standing up here thinking to myself, I have no idea what I'm saying right now at all. I'm sure I taught some heresy that night. I mean, it was really, really bad. And later I went home and I thought, that was one of the stupidest things that I have ever done. I'm never going to do that again. And my wife had warned me ahead of time, like, you should not attempt that. But I'd seen others do it. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And um, But, you know, I got to tell you, I so enjoy now. I so enjoy sharing teaching with the other guys that are around here that God has gifted to bring the word. I enjoy, you know, being taught by Tyler and Pete and Aaron and Jesse and Jamie and some of, you know, these guys. And and I'm really looking forward to here on Wednesday nights in January when we uh, pick up In our study in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, um, I'm actually going to probably teach about half of the book, and those guys are going to teach the other chapters. And I'm really, really looking forward to uh, doing that with all of you. So, if you, this is what Paul's telling us if we're going to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the things of the Lord, Paul's saying, look, you can't do it alone. You need others. Jesus sent his disciples out. Now, as we come to verses 14 and 15, Paul sums up what he's been saying with this word of exhortation. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Now, the words watch, stand fast, be brave, and be strong are all military terms. And I think Paul is reminding us here of something that's really important He's reminding us that the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. Guys, we're in a war. There's an enemy who is out. He doesn't like us who seeks to oppose us. And so we, we need to always be on guard if we are going to remain steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We have to take seriously, in other words, our calling and the battle that we find ourselves in. Standing in the strength and in the power that is ours because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And since he has risen from the dead, he's alive in us. And because of that, we are fighting in this battle, not for victory, but we fight from a position of victory because Jesus has, always, has already been victorious. Amen? Amen. So that's how we can be brave and strong. But here's what's interesting. What Paul says in verse 14 almost seems like a stark contrast to what he says in verse 13. In verse 13, he's describing commando, soldier, right? And love is not something that is usually associated with that picture. I mean, picture a football coach, you know, giving his pregame speech to his football team and saying, all right, guys, I want you to go out there. I want you to watch, to be on guard. I want you to stand fast. I want you to be brave. I want you to, you know, be strong. You've got this. And then the last thing he says, and let everything you do be done in love. (laughs) I mean, how crazy is that? Like They'd be scratching their helmets going like, what are you talking about, coach? The picture that Paul is painting here is that really of meekness. And you see, meekness is not weakness. But meekness has been defined as power under control. Jesus was the most powerful human being who has ever lived. The wind and waves obeyed him. Demons fled when he commanded them. The dead were raised, death was defeated by him. When he was arrested, if you remember this, they came into the garden. and they said, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he says, I am. And all the soldiers fell over just because of his word. But Jesus was a great picture of meekness, of power under control. And love was the guiding force of his life. He was the most powerful person and also the most loving person all wrapped up into one. And he wants us to walk in that same reality. To realize that there's power that we have in Jesus because Jesus is in us. But our lives need to be tempered by love because we know, as Paul would write, that our battle is not with flesh and blood. See, that's where we get, we get so messed up sometimes. We we think our battle is with people. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. But it's against principalities and powers. And we need to be on guard, and we need to, to be strong in the battle against the enemy, but we need to be loving towards people that God puts in our lives, realizing that they are hurting and that they are lost. And some of them, even though they're saved, they're, they're broken and they're in need of mending. And so Paul gives them this, this exhortation that has this mixture of, of really, it's a beautiful picture of the way Jesus carried himself. Well, we wrap this up with a couple final words and salutations. He begins with some examples of those who are being steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the Lord. Verse 15, he says, I urge you, brethren, you know that the the household of Stephanus, that it is the the firstfruits of Achaia that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints and that you also submit to such To everyone who works and labors with us. Now the word devoted in verse 15 can also be translated addicted. Which I think is such a great picture. This guy Stephanus was so given to the ministry of the Lord. That his whole family, his whole household was addicted to serving Jesus as well. And I say this to all of us here who are parents. You want your kids to be given to the work of the Lord. You you want them to to have hearts for the Lord. You, You be given to the Lord. You have a heart for Jesus and give them opportunities, create opportunities where they can serve together with you. A great example of that would be this Saturday. Go Christmas caroling. It's a simple little way and your kids are getting a chance to see some people really get blessed by a simple thing of going out like that and, you know, sacrificing some time to bless people in that way. Paul says in verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and uh, Acaciacus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refresh my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men, give them honor in other words. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now this is interesting. When Paul first came to Corinth he lodged with two fellow tent makers couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul made his living. Remember we talked about that in the early chapters of tent making, because he didn't want to be a burden on the the people in, in, in Corinth. And these people tended seemed to have the the gift of hospitality. They welcomed Paul in, they let him work with him. And I don't know if they became believers or if they were already believers, but they became strong in the faith so much so that when Paul went to Ephesus, they went with him. And when he left Ephesus, he left Aquila and Priscilla kind of to oversee the church. And then later, after ministering in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla joined Paul in Rome where a church, we read in Romans 16, actually met in their house. And then they returned to Ephesus to help Timothy, who would eventually become the pastor there in Ephesus. These guys were helpers. They had the gift of hospitality. They had the gift of helps. We never read of, of Aquila or Priscilla giving any Bible studies, but we do read of them talking to Apollos and actually kind of mentoring him in his theology in Christ. Because his, his theology at first was a little off. He was a great orator. He was really, really gifted. But his theology was a little off. And these, these guys sat down with him. This couple sat down with him. And they mentored him in proper theology. This amazing couple. Aquila and Priscilla were on the move. They were flexible. They were determined to serve the Lord any way possible. They're a great model for you and for me. And God used them greatly. As Paul wraps this up, in verse 20, he says this. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with, their, this, uh, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He says, I'm writing this final thing Uh, With my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. And there you have it. We just finished 1 Corinthians. Give yourselves a hand, all right? It's always fun. I always have fun starting a book and finishing a book, and uh, the in between, all that is really fun too. But uh, I always feel like, all right, we accomplished something. We finished uh, First Corinthians. So let's stand together. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the lessons that we see put forth here. These just really um, amazing principles from the Apostle Paul, about how we can be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. God, I pray that these principles would just be etched into the very core of who we are as individuals as well as as a church. And God, we pray that you would just have your way in us and with us, as we are living, God, in interesting times. Lord, we want to be fruitful for you. And so, Lord, we give you our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.